namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa utang dhammang sangham namasami Yeah, so sometimes the most important thing is the most obvious thing that we don't really spend enough time with. We skip over what's most obvious or we don't even really bring it to mind. Maybe um, the most obvious thing is that our experience is very direct. You know, we experience... um, whatever experience you're experiencing <laughs> now, directly. You know, it's not delayed in time. It's, uh, it's not theory. It's actually direct, even a thought is a direct experience, something that's happening. But we don't, often we don't handle it or relate to it very directly. We think about it or we interpret it or we judge it or we favor it or we look away from it or we wish it was something else, or, you know, is this the right one, that one? So there's these kind of secondary processes happening, you know. And that secondary process occurs around just about everything, you know. Everything we do, we think, oh, it could be this. Everything suggested, or maybe uh, there could be another option, possibly. And what will it be like in the future? And, well, I don't know what I really feel about that. You know, it's some kind of wavering around direct. It's giving oneself the time to actually stay with the direct. And maybe the first uh, real bit about the Buddha's teaching is is uh, called the direct Santitiko Dhamma, teaching that's direct, pointing direct experience. You know, you've got to translate, if you like, from the theories and the lists and the ideas, even the teachings of the Buddha, nice little labels and lists of things, into something that's actually happening for you, that you really get directly. And uh, to really get it directly means you get, um, you get a kind of a, a gotted experience. And the gotted experience is actually something that's got a kind of bodily flavour to it. When you really get something, it hits you and you go, mm. you know, you, you say you've got a gut knowledge of it. The rest of it's just floating by, maybe, maybe, and something rings, and you resonate. Yeah, I got that. Now that's that's a, that's a direct apprehension. You know, it's not just the possibility or interesting idea. And you want to look for those direct 
senses that you get, of, well, even if they're unpleasant, oh, really didn't like that, that really didn't work. You know? So you're looking into that area of direct experience. Realizing that, uh, and that's a kind of translation, or you could say it's an untranslation. You know, so just consider that Buddha had some sort of experience that he went mm, with. <laughs> you know, a big, big um. And then it spent it took quite a while abiding in that to think, how on earth am I going to wrap some words around this? And I thought, no, it can't be done. It's impossible. And he spent about six or seven weeks just abiding in this gigantic mm, in this place in India, enjoying it. And he's starting to kind of, well, this is that, and that depends on that. And you know, he started to actually be able to kind of configure it. Even then, he didn't really have it down pat. He got it clear, at least some, some kind of ways of pegging some words around it in his own mind. Words, strange words, things like becoming. And... Uh, you know, contact and ignorance and you know, what are these? Yeah. And then he he went walking and he, he walked off to see his five former companions. And even then he didn't really know how he was going to do it because the first guy he met, he just gave him some kind of statement of like, you know, I've had this big um. Uh, you know, I'm the conqueror of the all-knowing. And the other guy went, well, yeah, so what? You know, he didn't get it. So the, the Buddha then, you know, listened to that, noticed that, and then he, he really went to, to, the, to the nerve endings with his five former buddies and said, look, you know, basically there's a lot of suffering in your life. <laughs> Got it? Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, and I know the way out. Got that? Ah. Oh. <laughs> You know, they, well, that's that's not just uh, you know it resonated, and it resonated probably because they could see him, you know, really clear, strong. They could see somebody stand, being, standing, experiencing that. The important thing to get, you know, is to recognize this was a flesh and blood person, and you know, in a state of great firmness, great confidence, great clarity, palpable. And something, and we could get that just by looking at him. You know, he said a few words, and they'd find themselves immediately thinking, oh, oh, and looking around for a place for him to sit, and setting up a place for him to sit down, and paying respects to him before he'd said very much. Just they were so impressed by the presence that his enormous aha had become embodied. And it was a full embodied experience that they could experience themselves through just being in his presence. And then you know that's not just somebody spouting off some ideas. This person is walking it, sitting it, breathing it, you can feel it. Yeah. So the, this is, you know, so the first thing is that although we often come to Dhamma from some sort of, you know, you look for some ideas, and that's important, but really what gets you is the direct experience or the presence of people got something that you feel mm, with you know that you know so you're getting it directly and this is where this quality of faith confidence starts to really get settled in
some sense of there's a meaning here, there's some big meaning, something important here. Listen up. Hmm? Now naturally, you know, why you know, direct experience, though it sounds kind of, um, you know, straight down the line, isn't so easy because a lot of our direct experience is pretty confused. You know, pain, that's direct. Anger, that's pretty direct. Feeling depressed, that's very direct. <laughs> you know, feeling just kind of woozy and, and groggy and not quite not what to do, that's direct, that's not just an idea. So, you know, so yeah, that we, we're moving into direct experience, but of course the other thing is that there's a way in which that direct experience can be clarified to become a support, not just a you know, confusing mass of difficult experiences. There's a path to the clearing, a cessation of this confusion. And, you know, direct experience. I remember a friend of mine, he said when he first listened to his first Buddhist teacher who was talking about getting to the point of direct experience, and he couldn't get what this guy was talking about he got really irritated and he went down to him and said, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Direct experience. What do you mean? And the teacher grabbed all his nose and gave it a tweak. He said, <laughs> he said, it really hurt. He said, that's what I mean. Got it? <laughs> you know, you, it was like, a, you could say, as an energetic meeting <laughs> of energies. You know, this guy was clearly angry. And the teacher obviously was just saying, back off, you know. Put that step back, you know. Uh, listen, take it in. Be patient, you know, but doing it very directly. You know. Sometimes you need a good tweak on the nose, don't you? <laughs> or a pat on the back, you know. The realm of direct experience is, is pretty much one that takes you into an embodied sense. You know, you know, something, so you get it with your whole body. You get it with a, you know, and it, it gives you really, you start to uh, also acknowledge that when I you mean the body, I'm talking about this, something that's very obvious. We search for all kinds of meanings and truths and realities and points and purposes and why we're here and what they are. But the most obvious thing that we overlook is that we're all embodied. Well, yeah, so what? So you think of something like spirituality and immediately, you know, it's out there somewhere, you know, in the world of theory and spaces and subtle things and perceptions and stuff. But the, the, the Buddha recommend the entry is in the body this is mindfulness of the body so this is where you find the deathless or something freedom, release 
comes through mindfulness of the body. This is the entry point, embodied. It, and it's talking about um, the embodied experience and saying things like all, all forms of wisdom arise in the body, the four noble truths arise in the body, the beginning, end of the world and the path beyond is in this body with its perceptions and consciousness and feelings. So, you know, what is talk, what's he talking about? You cut a body open, you don't see the four noble truths. You don't see any wisdom in there. But obviously he's talking about the kind of intelligence that bodies have. And again, it's an obvious thing that we overlook. You try to write a paper on how to walk, you know, on how to arrange all those muscles to synchronize. You try to get a system that's going to take in, say, a handful of food, break it down into all kinds of um, nutrients, put aside what it's useless and doesn't want, and, and break that down and make that into energy, you know? You, you, you try to do something like create an artificial kidney and it's something the size of this room. <laughs> it's still, it just doesn't work as well. But bodies can do that. They're incredibly intelligent. But their intelligence is not abstract, so we don't count it. What's balance? You know, how do you know how to, when you stand, how balance is about? How do you know what tension is about? what happiness is about, what ease is about, what warm-heartedness and love is about, what defensiveness and mistrust is about. Because you get it. You get it in your chest, you get it in your belly, you get it in your nerve endings, you get it in the blood, and you get it in the feelings in your fingers. It's direct, embodied. So this is... And it doesn't... You know, you can't fake it. If you're feeling frightened, fearful, you can't, you know, you can pretend you're not. You can bluff on top of it, but something in you knows that. And of course, it's kind of embarrassing. You know, it's like when people walk their dogs. I walk down the street, the person sort of doesn't see me, the dog does. Dog rushes up, wants to say hello, wants to figure out what I'm about, gives a sniff, looks up, bounces around. Owner pretends I'm not there, walks past, you know. <laughs> the, do- the dog has got more direct intelligence or is able to show his direct intelligence. Whereas human beings, they maybe feel uncertain, but they don't want to show it. So you kind of put all this stuff on top of it, social customs and conventions on top of that, you know. Because a lot of our direct experience is just something we're not really very happy with. But in this, in this embodied practice, is the way to clarify, to bring all those strange, conflicting energies and emotions and, and tangled up senses. It brings them together. It acts like a kind of magnet. You know, when we when we sit. We bear the body in mind, we bear embodiment in mind, and you stay with it. It acts like a kind of a magnet that gradually draws everything together into a harmonious pattern. And this harmonious sense is called samadhi or concentration. 
you know. Of course, when you make an idea or a concentration, you immediately feel uptight and tense. That's what we think concentration is. But it isn't. It's this sense of the steadiness, the stillness, and essentially the kind of quality of, of ease that happens when your system is in order, when your embodied experience is, is in order. And strangely, that doesn't really depend so much on what your meat is doing, but what your intelligence is doing, what your body intelligence is doing. So it's not purely a matter of, of, of kind of, whether it's, you know, physical strength, even posture, but really what your body intelligence is doing, whether it's coming into harmony and balance. Yeah, so our, you know, when we get, and that means something, that very obvious thing, just the fact that we're embodied. Something we kind of look over the top of, or we try, what we're going to do with it, you know, and we immediately search for something else, or to make something, or we just come back, come back. This very obvious thing is a very important thing. It's a meaning. It's not a meaning as an idea. It's a meaning that is very meaningful because it gives you strength, gives you clarity, gives you confidence, gives you settledness, sorts out all these kind of waverings and twitterings and flushes and pushes and tightness and tension and urges. It just starts to say, bring them all home, settle them down. So that's the big meaning, or a big meaning, that the Buddha found on his way to the to great aha. It was the first one, because up to then he'd been beating up his body, or trying to get out of it. Now we search for meanings and truths in all kinds of things, uh, ideas. Spiritual ideas, political ideas, religious ideas. Give us a sense of clarity, confidence. This seems right, this seems truthful. What do you really know? Well, you know you're embodied, that's the one thing. And can you abide in that? Can you settle back into that? Feel out the meaning of that? So this is what we mean about direct, and it's a kind of effort. And yet it's it's an effort that brings you home, settles you down. You know, a lot of effort is used up in either trying to get somewhere, be something, find something, make something happen, change something, fix something, sort something out. or shut it all down, push away, contract, don't see it, don't feel it. You're what we call becoming or non-becoming. Either you push into something, you're trying to get involved with it, or you try and pull out of it, shut it off. And these are the Buddha said, these are two fundamental inclinations or views or perspectives 
that start to operate in this confusion. And when, but when we, you know, come find uh, the meaning of embodiment, then it's not about being something or not being something. It's not about making something happen or stopping things happening. It's not about getting anywhere or going or not getting anywhere. It's just about here it is. Here it is. It doesn't have to make sense as an idea. It's beyond that, you know. It's just the gigantic here-ness that you can feel. And around that, the more that you bear that in mind, it draws all these uh, energies and senses, it starts to pull them, draw them back like a magnet does. Because it has a certain pleasant feeling, that's pleasant not because you're getting hold of something outside yourself or some special thing is touching you or seeing you, but just because the pleasure of coming home, the pleasure of getting your boots off, the pleasure of breathing out, the pleasure of knowing where you are. It's pleasant. It's, it's comfortable, it's clear, it's grounded, it's sensible, it's sane. Yeah. So, we're actually then really starting to rely upon some... We begin to discern that, yeah? to really know that quality of... Hmm, clarity, orderliness... Things have a certain balance. So you start to know directly a way in which some fundamental energies or faculties that we operate through, unite, come together. What these faculties or energies are, which we all experience we have something in us that naturally wants to bond, get into, bind, and to something pleasant, pleasurable, comfortable, agreeable, satisfying. Clearly that's what part of our life is about, finding the right spot. And, uh, you know, a lot of our energy goes out trying to find that somewhere else, out there, something we can see, touch, something we can buy, get, have, belong to. And the uh, rather sad thing is that some, some people never quite get the point that you could come back home for that. And I imagine that most of us who are meditating have got that sense of, you know, yeah, it's okay out there sometimes, it's not bad, but in here is where the real thing is going to click. And just to bear in mind that that is accompanied by a quality of joy because of a sense of delight to return to what's obvious. I find it wasn't that far away. It didn't require a whole lot of uh, acquisitions or beliefs. It required just being 
direct and coming back. Uh, a pleasant remembering, you might say. Remembering accompanied by a kind of joy. Oh. Oh. You know, this is the first. Oh. So, you know, or maybe the second. It's not the big one, but it's it's getting there. <laughs> you know, so the first one may be that sense of, oh, it's about directly where I am. So let's consider these. You know, we have something that searches for meaning and when we get the encouragement that this meaning isn't really a word or an idea or a theory, but it's a direct experience that's embodied, that's the first. Uh-huh. And this is where we get a quality called faith, which means you feel confidence, assurance. You can do it, you can have it, you can be it. Some, In some ways... You could say you're already there, except that's not quite true because a lot of the time we're not really here. You know, <laughs> it's there, but we're not. We're moving out. Yeah. So though, you know, awakening could be said to be already here. Unfortunately, most of the time we aren't. But you get that glimmer that well, it could be there. That could be if I could just cut engines, if I could just turn this thing around, come back home. Maybe that would be it. This is what the Buddha began to consider. So faith. And that's a transformation of our ideas of where uh, meaning and is going to occur. Of course, we have a lot of do it in our lives. All our everything is about doing, isn't it? Sometimes it's really frantic. Um, or we're dithering, or doing this and then changing our minds and doing something else, and wondering what we should do about all this doing that we're doing, and how much we should do, and whether we're doing too much or the right thing, or you know, and you feel this energy course through your veins. Moving around. We are human doings rather than human beings, I think, sometimes. <laughs> so what's the, what's the right thing to do? I remember when I was... Uh, this was a big question for me when I was in my teens, I guess it is for a lot of people. You know, you, you just go along with the system. You go through school and you go through... I was in boy... Wolf cubs. I didn't get to Boy Scouts because I got disillusioned with cubs. <laughs> you know, so I did the things, and then you get to about fifteen, sixteen. You're thinking, "Hey, yeah, what am I supposed to do with life?" You suddenly get the realization: you know, death, change, activities about to get into some kind of system or another that's going to go through for 35 years or so and then you get the sense of career, retirement, 
family, marriage, kids, occupations. What are you doing? What are you doing? You know, what am I supposed to be doing? Think of a career. What kind of career do I do? I don't know. You know. So there's a lot about doing and the need to do. So one of the um, we have this energy. So one of the points is how that connect to a meaning and to a place where we're getting some sense of satisfaction. This is called the injury or the faculty of, of energy, applied energy. So often it's pretty, you know, as a raw material, it's pretty scrambled going all over the place. But once we get this sense of it's back here, their energy is really about a kind of turning the engine, turning the system around, regaining presence, coming back. You know, sense of things like restraint. You know, ghastly word, but collectedness, not spinning out. And uh, just the application is needed to to stay present when there's so much habit about future, past, speculations, what I am, what I'm not, what I should be, and so on. And then we also have this uh, faculty which fortunately is able to notice, witness what's going on, take note of it, attention. And this becomes uh, the faculty of mindfulness, which is that sense in which you establish your attention in a clear way with the basic sense of What's meaningful, what's skillful, what's pleasant, what's what can I abide with? You know. So sometimes people kind of think, oh, mindfulness just means attentive, be attentive. But no, I don't think so. It's attention, but it's a particular quality of attention. You know, one of the old um, paradoxes can you mindfully rob a bank? Could you mindfully blow somebody's brains out? You know, carefully pick up the gun, feel the pressure of the trigger on your finger, take careful aim with a lot of attention, aim carefully, point to that person, pull the trigger, blow their brains out. You know, complete mindfulness. Well, you could be very attentive, but uh, mindfulness implies some sense of you really get the meaning of what you're doing. So, you know, for example, if you're mindful of a of a dead body, you get the sense of, hey, that's breaking up. That's a dead body. That's pretty much like this thing that I'm living in, except it's dead. I'm going to be there one day. <laughs> you know? So mindfulness of death, for example, isn't just noting it as a fact. It means there's a kind of resonance of this means something to me. Because I've got one of these things, or I am one of these things, or one of these things is, I can see it and feel it. So you don't mindfully, you may attentively 
blow somebody's brains out, but to be mindful that that's another being who will suffer pain, and the energy in your in your heart is pretty uh, violent. You know, it's it's uh, you don't want to do that because there's something that we don't necessarily know fully or we feel uncertain of that you really get with mindfulness with bearing in mind coming into your own presence and you may think there's all kinds of uncomfortable nasty things I'm going to find out about myself and there are (laughs) but one of the things you do find out about yourself is that you have a sense of um, you have an ethical sense it's built in something in this experience is a sense of compassion, conscience and concern, sense of we know, something just knows good and evil, not just there's values or judgments, but as a we feel the violence, the coarseness, the harshness, the poison of violence as a distasteful experience. And we feel the fruition, the happiness and the blossoming that comes with respect compassion, warm-heartedness. Something is, you know, you know that not as a theory. Now many of us do know it as a theory. You know, you should be good, it shouldn't be bad. And sometimes that actually gets in the way because we don't really examine it. And then we get judgmental and moralising because you should be good. You know, but... It's not a matter of you should be good or anybody should be good. It's a recognition that when we come back into presence, the good feels good and the bad feels bad. Isn't that obvious? But it took, it was the Buddha's, um, called his second great realization. So he didn't really know it until the night he had these three great realizations. And the, the second one was the real sense of knowing good and bad as potent, embodied, feeling energies, not just as social approval or disapproval. And that they had consequences that would lead to terrible pain and misery or joy. So it took the Buddha, you know, his moment of awakening to actually really get that. That's a big aha, and a very important one. And you get that with mindfulness. So it's not just being attentive in a kind of non-judgmental way, bare attention. It's a very full attention, but it's a full attention. It's not full of ideas and theories, but full of a natural, embodied hmm, purity, goodness. It sounds a bit sort of starchy, doesn't it? But, yeah. The way when you can help somebody, you feel good. It's lovely. And we have a sense of order or wisdom. You use a word like wisdom, you immediately get uh, the sense of what I'm talking about because wisdom is what? Plato? Aristotle, 
Wittgenstein, Einstein, people with big names, Descartes, wow, nuclear physics, Socrates. That's, or oh, that's the tremendous and quite impressive abstractions and theorizing. Not saying they should be dismissed, but they're of that nature. So you take a word like wisdom and you recognize that as the, the Buddha, in the Buddhist teaching, says wherever there's consciousness, there's wisdom. There's this saying where the, the Arahant, Sariputta says, wherever there's consciousness, there's wisdom. So, you know, your eyes have wisdom. Your ears have wisdom. Your fingers have wisdom. So we take that word wisdom, you shake it around, you recognize it's just the ability to discriminate. You know, I can see light and shade. That's visual wisdom. And noticing other finger, you know, you take your finger and uh, you touch something. You can feel the warmth, the wetness, the intensity of it. It's very, very wise. Fingers are very wise. Some of the wisest fingers are raccoons, actually. If you're interested. You know, raccoons, they can put their paws in the wa- down in cold Canadian water and tell the difference between a clam and a rock. That's a pretty wise finger, wise paw. And, you know, if you're a raccoon, it's important to know the difference, isn't it? So there's a lot of wisdom in fingers. Now you get that, you think, ah, now you know what wisdom means. And it can, you know, we come back, trust that. So that's another big, ah. So all that ability to discriminate and discern, which can we tenderly take into a purely mental, abstract realm, untranslate it or retranslate it back into direct experience, it's just, do you know you're standing? How do you know you're standing? Do you know you're balanced? How do you know you're balanced? Are you, how do you know you, are you relaxed? Are you rested? Yeah. And actually, this kind of wisdom is very obvious, very direct, and of course, like these other forms, we miss it. You know, you, you go through a city. See how many people know they've got feet? <laughs> Unless they stub their toe on something. Most people know they've got jobs, they've got futures, they've got appointments. They've got uh, a dinner to make, they've got someone to meet, they know that. They know they're going to have some money to pay for the ticket, they know that. They know they're going to get this job done by Friday, they know that. They don't know they've got feet. <laughs> so people are just spinning, you know. Spinning down the streets with no feet. <laughs> so we do walking meditation just to discover that we've got feet. And the feet are quite wise. Yeah. So all this, you know, 
there's quite a, a kind of a good, aha, obvious, direct, meaningful, because it, it takes you back. And it's not just an infantile regression about the text. It's coming to, to a kind of a, a quality of core presence or knowingness that, that actually is, begins to amalgamate all these different energies, the energy of confidence or meaningfulness, the energy of doing it, the energy of bonding, the energy of discernment, ordering, the energy or the faculty of mindfulness of bearing something in mind, it bonds them. They come together. They're no longer, energies are no longer fighting with each other. And this is called merging. And they merge in what the Buddha called enigmatically, merging in the deathless. So you think, oh, the deathless, what's that? Where's that? I haven't got one of those, have I? This is one of the first things the Buddha said to those his companions when he came back. Uh, um, the doors of the deathless are open. That those of you who can listen bring forth your faith. Those of you who can hear bring forth your faith. You, know, you get that directly. It means really... There's a doorway here to something enigmatic, you could say, deathless, unending, not bound in time, not located in space. Everything in space tends to move around and crumble, not located in time. If it sounds good, maybe. I don't want to be deathless misery. I'd like to be, you know, so hopefully it's pleasant. Uh, so it's probably perhaps a lot of life, life energy, or brightness, or something like that. Give you some suggestions. It doesn't explain; it just puts it there. It says, "Well, you can know the door. I'll take you to the door. That those of you can listen, bring forth your faith. Means you're going to have to open up. You have to receive." You get wider. Bring forth your faith. Just bring forth that sense of confidence, hearness, direct. Don't have to stretch and strain forth. Yeah. So this this is the take you to the door. This is really, you know, what we can instruct, teach. And that's a very big aha. Uh-huh. Because perhaps, you know, of all things, something as big as the deathless is something that we should least theorize around, least spin out on, least pick up views about, least get dogmatic about, <laughs> least get frantic about. It says, don't 
go there with that one. <laughs> Don't do that with that one. Don't. Just focus on the practices that establish these five faculties, faith, confidence, energy, application, um, mindfulness, samadhi, concentration, and wisdom, discernment. Focus on those where as they come together, you know, everything rests. Things rest. There's a ceasing of this desperate holding on to stuff because stuff holds itself. It's like when you're in balance, you're not tense, you're not holding anything. You are actually in balance. When you're in poise, there's something and you can relax. He's saying this too is the deathless, the not having to hold on psychologically, physically, emotionally, not having to clutch, cling, reach out. This too is the deathless. So what you can know is what it's not. The absence of clinging, the absence of thirst, the absence of confusion. And it comes around through the meeting and merging of these, these faculties. And without that, you know, then life gets kind of a bit messy, really. Because kind of we don't have a lot of choice. If you don't, you know, get it together, we can do a lot of damage to ourselves. Anxiety, jealousy, depression, anger, greed, recriminations, bitterness, you know. You know, you can wake up in the morning and have that some of that stuff coming before you even really, you know, got to the toast. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, uh, there's a proportion of that that we're going to act upon verbally or mull over in our thinking minds or physically act upon. So we can do ourselves and others a lot of harm if we don't get it together. Uh, and there's one important thing, if you like, one big meaningful thing, is it's through this very obvious experience, direct embodiment, that you find you're fumbling around and you find hey, it, feels, it feels like a door because there's a way in here, a way that's interesting, a way that's deepening, a way that takes me through. I don't quite know where it's going, but it feels like a door. So this is the most important thing bear in mind the most obvious thing